Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, I just want to say welcome. It is good to have you. If there's anything that we can do or I can do to help you get connected to the community here at River City, I'd love to be able to do that. Come find me afterwards. I'd love to get to know you, get to meet you, and and help you check in with the community here. So um, it is good to be back with you all this morning after a few weeks out of the pulpit. Uh, Big thanks to Andy and Aaron who uh, preached in the past couple of weeks while I was away, giving me some space to work on prep ahead on a number of things and and just to get a little bit of rest in before we start the fall. And so I trust that God has been speaking to you through his word and through those guys as well. And so grateful for them. But man, I'm excited to be back, uh, be back with you guys, studying God's word, digging through that together. I trust that our time in God's word this morning will be good. Uh, we'll be, uh, God will use it for good in your own hearts. And so uh, this year, we have been working our way through the gospel of Matthew together. Uh, we have got four weeks left. You're like, I wonder when this is going to end. Four weeks later, it'll end, right? We've been here for about nine months. Normally at River City, our series aren't really like nine, ten months at a chunk, uh, but Matthew's a long book, and so for us at River City, we really want to prioritize the Word of God being the thing that sets the way that we, uh, we just want God's Word to be the thing that's central in our time together, and so uh, some books are longer than others, and they just take a little longer to get through, and so that's where we've been in Matthew. Uh, This fall, we'll be taking a look a little bit at the Ten Commandments and what that looks like, and then we'll be celebrating Advent together, so we've got a bunch of really exciting things I'm looking forward to to being together. But we have been in Matthew this this year, and uh, if you've been with us, what you know is that the main theme of Matthew, the big idea that runs throughout the course of the entire book, is that Matthew is proclaiming the coming of the king and the kingdom. You see, Jesus is the messianic king that throughout the Old Testament God had been promising would come to set all things right and to usher in his kingdom once and for all. And, and in chapter 1, what we saw is that Matthew's gospel begins with this proclamation that the king who had been promised has finally come. And that in the birth of Jesus, the inauguration of God's kingly rule and reign had, had come. It was the beginning of that. But Jesus, neither his life, his birth, None of that was what people expected, or really, if we're honest, it's not what people wanted. It's not what the Jews wanted their savior king to be like. You see, the Israelites, they were desperately hoping for a king that would come rescue them in power and overthrow the Roman government who had conquered and oppressed them, but that is not what Jesus came to do. You see, he hadn't come to conquer Rome or to establish an earthly kingdom at this time. You see, he had come to conquer the greater enemies of Satan and sin and death. And he'd come to establish a heavenly kingdom that, was, that would never fade. And so over and over and over again throughout Matthew's gospel, what you see happening is Jesus is trying to get that reality through the disciples' thick skulls. And if it's any consolation to you, your skull might be just as thick as mine is and as the disciples was. And so I appreciate the reminders, right? Because like I need the Jesus keep showing me that over and over and over again. And so that's good for my heart. I'm grateful for that. You see, but Jesus was trying to help the disciples realize that his coming was the inauguration of his kingdom, not the consummation of it. You see, his first coming was the inauguration of his kingdom, not the consummation of it. You see, his coming hasn't been the end of the story. You see, it was actually the beginning of the end. You see, by the time we get to chapter 24, this reality is starting to come into view for the disciples. And in our passage this morning, as we're, Jesus and the disciples are walking out of Jerusalem with Jesus, just days before he would be arrested and crucified, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him some really important questions. Yeah. See, the disciples, they, they want to know about the end. 
They want to know. They're thinking, well, this isn't the end of the story. We know this, well, this isn't the answer. What is, what is the end of the story? They want to know what's next. They want to know what can they expect and when can they expect it and how will they know when the end is getting near. And I think we all have questions like that. We want to know about the future. We want to know what's next. <laughs> Every night, my kids at bedtime are kind of like uh, that uh, Chinese lady at the Chinese drive-thru in the classic film, Dude, Where's My Car, right? They're ordering, and then, and then, and then, and then I finally have to be like, no, and then, no more. I can't, I don't know what we're doing six weeks from now, right? We're just, we're going to go to bed, and we're going to wake up, and that's all I know, okay? You see, we want to know what's next. My kids want to know what's next. We all want to know what's next. Whether that we want to know it out of curiosity or fear or uncertainty, or my, like my wife, so she can plan the calendar about a month and a half and a year out in advance. You see, we're all curious about it. But as we see this morning, Jesus doesn't really give us the answers that we're looking for. He doesn't, he doesn't really give us the answers that we, that we want to know oftentimes. He gives us some details, but it's far from a clear picture. And he gives us a timeline of sorts, but it's kind of like a stock chart in lifetime view, but the fonts and wingdings, right? It's like, it's just hard to, it's kind of hard to like just pin down the precise details, right? It's certainly not an itemized hour by hour itinerary. But while Jesus doesn't tell the disciples or us for that matter, all that we want to know about the end of the story, you see what he does do is he tells us all we need to know. He says he, he tells us everything we need to know to wait for the end well. He gives us everything we need to know to be prepared for his kingly return and for the consummation of his kingdom. You see, and so as we study this morning, uh, a, a passage that I'll just shoot straight with you is rather confusing and is hard to understand. One of the most difficult, challenging passages in all the Bible. A chapter where Jesus talks about the end of the world and his triumphant return. My goal, I'm just going to just head you off at the past, is not to answer all of your questions about the end times or to predict a date at which you can plan your retirement funds until. Uh, instead... What I want to do this morning is to help you see the big picture of what Jesus is trying to help the, these disciples see. What I, what I want you to do is I want you to help, help you to see what Jesus was trying to cause his disciples to get, to sink into their heads and to their hearts about his impending return. And it is this. You see that although the end might be uncertain and unclear to them, it was not to him. It was crystal clear to him that although things were going to go, not going to go the way they'd expected or the way that they wanted, they could still trust that he was in absolute, unquestionable control. And that although he had come the first time in humility and suffering as the servant who would lay down his life for his people, he was indeed coming again, but this time it would be in power as the just judge of all people who is coming to rule and to reign victoriously forever. You see, what Jesus wanted those first disciples and for you and I as his followers today to, is, is for our eyes to be fixed on him. The author of the story, the king of the kingdom, who we can trust implicitly and hope in confidently you see, when our hope and our trust is set on him and his word, you see the good news is that it changes everything about our lives on that day. But it also changes everything on our lives every day until that one as well. And so as we study this morning, that's my heart for you this morning, that we would see who Jesus says he is and what he has to say about his return and that it would change us on that day and on every day until then. And so let's pray as we dive into God's word this morning. Buckle up because it's going to get interesting, okay? 
Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you would keep it for us so that we might know you through it. And so, God, we humbly ask this morning, God, we come to you in a challenging passage this morning, one that is not crystal clear, one that is hard. But, God, we ask by your spirit you would cause the big picture, the truths of your word, to sink into our hearts and so that we might come to love you more and trust you more and live each day in light of your 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 coming return. And so we say we need your help this morning. God, I need you. We need you. God, we come dependent on you this morning. And so we ask God for our good and for your great glory that you might uh, speak to us through your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew 24. Like I said, it's bound to be interesting this morning. Jesus left the temple and he was walking away with his disciples and his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they said, tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming that I am the Messiah and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. For such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all of these are the beginning of birth pains. And then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken uh, of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, let, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let no one on the housetops go down to take anything out of the house, let no one in the field go back to their cloak, how dreadful it will be in those days for the pregnant woman and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or in the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again and if those days had not been cut short no one would survive but for the sake of the elect those days have been shortened and at that time if anyone says to you look here's the messiah or there he is do not believe it for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect and so i have told you ahead of time and so if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness do not go out Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And wherever there is a carcass, there are vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the star will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken and then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all of the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you will know that summer is near. Even so, 
When you see all these things, know that it is near, right at the door. For truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's the word of the Lord this morning. You see, our passage begins with Jesus foreshadowing the destruction of the Jewish temple. This happens in verse 2. He says, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And his words were literally fulfilled in AD 70, just 40 years, within 40 years of his remarks here, when the, Rome, the Romans under Titus destroyed all of Jerusalem, including the temple, um, and even going so far as to literally pry apart the stones of the temple to get the gold that had melted when the roof had burned. See, the significance of this event is hard to understate. See, the temple was central to Jewish faith and life. It was literally where God dwelled and where he met with his people. And the temple was also this incredibly massive structure built with stones, some of which the Bible tells us were 40 feet long by 12 feet wide by 12 feet deep. And so the disciples are thinking, if that, if that building is getting destroyed, that has got to be the end. Right? That, is, that has got to be it. I don't know exactly what the end is, but that has got to be part of it. And so in verse 3, they say to Jesus, tell us when this will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. You see, they want to know about Jesus' return, when he's coming back. The word, that word used here for coming, it's, it's a bit of a unique uh, it's a bit of a unique word in the original language. It's, it's the word uh, parousia, which refers to the presence of a king. So it's not just anyone's coming. There's a king who is coming. They're saying, Jesus, we know that you are the Messiah. Jesus, we know that you are the king. So tell us. Tell us, when are you coming back? When are you coming back to rule and to reign in the kingdom that you have begun? And how are we going to know when that's getting close? And, and when can we expect all these things to happen? And as we study this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you five things Jesus tells us we can expect regarding his kingly return. There is a lot more than that. We'll stick with five, okay? And then what I want to do is I want to show you how knowing and believing those things, it changes every day of our lives, not just the one day that he will return. And so before we dive in, again, I just want to shoot straight with you. This passage is tough to understand. In fact, it is one of the most controversial passages in all the Bible. When you read commentators about this, every good commentator begins with, hey, uh, here's where I stand on it, but um, no one really knows 100% exactly what's going on here. Some people think that most of what Jesus says here is fulfilled by AD 70 when that temple was destroyed. Others think that most of what Jesus says here is, is ultimately going to be fulfilled before his second coming. But most commentators land somewhere in between, seeing Jesus' words here intertwining prophecy about the, the impending destruction of Jerusalem and also his second coming. Kind of, kind of like uh, the, with the impending destruction of Jerusalem serving as kind of like this symbol, this uh, foreshadowing of what will happen when his second coming happens. It's, I know it's a little tough to understand, um, but no matter which view you hold or which view commentator hold, there are hard questions to answer. There are questions that are just like, eh, I don't know exactly. And I just want you to hear this morning, that's okay. It's okay because you don't need to know the exact details or timing of everything Jesus is alluding here to understand the big picture. You see, in fact, that's kind of the, Jesus' point this morning. You see, at the heart of Jesus' answer to these disciples' questions here is that he is the king. 
that he is the king who will one day return and that they can trust him. And he gives them some signs and he gives them some things to expect, but he invites them to be far more concerned with their perpetual readiness than with the details of the timing. And so with that in mind, five things that Jesus tells us, tells the disciples they can expect regarding his kingly return. Five things that we can expect. And the first is this, that the king's return will be preceded by tribulation and proclamation. You see, Jesus says before his return, sin and destruction, that all that it causes in society will go from bad to worse. His followers can expect there to be trials and tribulations. Verse 4 and 5 says there'll be false prophets and spiritual deception. The idea throughout this passage, right, is that there'll be those who try to deceive God's people Verse 7 says that there will be wars and famines and earthquakes. Verse 9 says that Christians will be hated and persecuted and even killed. Verse 10 highlights how many people will turn away from the faith. And that doesn't mean here that people are going to lose their salvation, but it means that the trials and tribulations that happen will cause many people to see the cost of following Jesus as far too high and to abandon what they have begun. Think here of when Jesus spoke in Matthew 13 about the rocky soil or the thorny soil. You see, and the disciples, they really needed to hear Jesus' words about the end this way. You see, because in their mind, in the end, things were just going to keep getting better and better and better and better. The king had come. He had inaugurated his kingdom. This is just, we're just going to, this is just going to keep rolling. It's going to keep getting better and better and better. And what Jesus says is, that's not how it's going to be. It's going to be hard. There will be trials and there will be tribulations. But he says in verse 6, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen but the end is still to come. See, the disciples, they would see all these things happen, and you and I would see all these things happen, and if Jesus, we had not had Jesus' word, we would be flooded with doubt. And Jesus is saying here this, this morning to the disciples, don't worry, you're not going to miss it. You haven't missed it. Your hope wasn't misplaced. You can trust me. When you see all of these things happening, the end is still coming. But it's not just trials and tribulations we can expect to precede the king's return. It's the proclamation of the gospel of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Verse 14 says it this way. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The mission that Jesus is going to give the disciples in just a few chapters at the end of 28 to to take the gospel, the great commission, to the ends of the earth. That mission is going to be finished And then Jesus is going to come to consummate his kingdom. And I don't know about you, but that was really encouraging for me this week. See, the mission to make disciples is hard. And sometimes it feels like you are not making much progress. And it can be discouraging. It can feel overwhelming. It's just really good for me to be reminded this week, Jesus says, the mission isn't going to die out. It's not going to stall out. The mission gets finished. And when it's finished, the king will come. See, people say, well, how do you know when that's going to happen? I think George Ladd, the commentator, he sums it up best. He says, God alone knows the definition of the terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I know one thing. Christ has not come and returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. And so when it is done, Christ will come. And our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms. Our responsibility is to complete the task. And so as long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. So let us continue to be busy and complete the mission. See, the mission gets finished, and then the king returns. And that should be good news for your heart this morning, but also good news that calls you to be committed to his purposes. 
So things are going to be going from bad to worse, but the gospel will still be taken to all the world. And after one final surge of societal evil, including all that stuff in verse 15 about the abomination of desolation and everybody running for the hills, Jesus is going to return. And in verse 26 through 29, we see that the king's return will be unmistakable and utterly transformational. You see, Jesus isn't just coming back in secret. The king's return will not be hidden. It won't, be happen, it won't happen as the Jehovah's Witnesses say it did in obscurity and in ambiguity in 1914. See, unlike Jesus' first coming, where people had to search him out in some podunk little town, at his second coming, there will be no way to escape his, the knowledge of his presence. Verse 27 says it this way, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You won't miss it. You don't have to worry. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I wonder if I miss Jesus' return. You didn't. You'd know. It would be undeniable. You see, but his return, it won't just be unmistakable. It will be utterly transformational. Verse 29 reads, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And the point here is probably not that there will be these literal cosmic upheavals, but that when Jesus returns, it will be an earth-shattering event. It will be so monumental that life as it has been lived up until that point will not be able to go on. You see, you don't have to worry about missing Jesus' return. It is something no one could miss. And his return will change everything. It will, be the, it will be an ultimate event in history. And so he is not sending a messenger. He is not coming quietly. And that leads us to the third thing we see about the king's return in verses 30 and 31. The king's return will be personal and glorious. You see, Jesus is actually coming back for real. Not spiritually, not metaphorically, not existentially. The king is coming to rule and reign in person. Verse 30 says it this way, the Son of Man will be coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, the King is coming to rule and reign in person. One commentator writes it this way, he says, that is tremendously significant, for it means that we shall not be confronted at the end of all things by one who is alien to us, who does not understand us, but rather one who has such intimate understanding of us that he has shared our existence within our very skin. We shall, in the end, be confronted by what it means to be really human, and that is both our shame and our hope. You see, King Jesus will return in person to rule and to reign. Verse 30 goes on. He says, the Son of Man will be coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. You see, the first time Jesus came in quietness and he came in humility, that is not how it will be the next time. Revelations 19, verse 11, reads this way. For I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. For he has a name that is written on him that no one knows but himself, and he is dressed in a robe dipped with blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, and white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written king of kings lord of lords 
You see, the king is returning one day. And his return will not be quiet. It will not be humble. It will be with power and glory. You see, and there are only two responses that will happen when King Jesus returns. There will be overwhelming sorrow or there will be exceeding joy. We see in verse, because fourthly what we see is that the king's return will bring judgment and salvation. You see, Revelation 1, uh, verse 30 begins, the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. Revelation 1 says that every eye will see him, even the ones that pierced him. Philippians 2 says that at his name, every knee on heaven and on earth will bow, and that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You see, there will be tears in everyone's eyes. For those who have rejected him or ignored him or were ignorant of him, they will be tears of mourning and of sorrow because it will be too late. For those who hope and trust in him, who have been longing and waiting for his return, they will be tears of exceeding joy. Because as verse 31 says, his angels will come and gather all his elect, all his people, from the four corners of the earth, from all over. You see, for those who have put their hope and their trust in him, there will have been no better day before that one. And for those whose hope is not in him, there will be no better day after see the king's return it will be preceded by tribulation and proclamation it will be unmistakable and transformation it will be personal and glorious it will bring judgment and salvation and last but most importantly we see in verse 35 that the king's return is guaranteed verse 35 reads this way heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass You see, Jesus is saying his return is more sure than the ground you stand on and the air that you breathe. His return is more sure than the patterns of the stars astronomers have set our calendars and dates to. David Platt says it this way, regardless of how someone might interpret this detail or that detail in this text, this is clear. Jesus accurately foretold the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years before it happened. These stones would pass away. That city would pass away. The people who filled that city would pass away, but his words would remain. You see, Jesus is not some fortune teller or tarot card reader. He is the Lord of history. He speaks with authority about the future because he knows the future. He ordains the future. He is the king who brings it to pass. And so he spoke about the destruction of of Jerusalem and it happened. And he spoke about his return one day and it will happen. And so my heart for you this morning is that you might build your life on his words. You see, there is nothing more sure than Jesus' words. See, the words and the ways of this world are fading, but his word never will. You see, the, the kings and the kingdoms of this world are constantly fading and being replaced by one another. Oh, but the king and his kingdom, they are inevitably emerging. You see, in believing Jesus' words, setting your hope and your trust in Jesus and his words regarding his kingly return, you see, that will change your life on that day. But it is also meant to change your life every day until then. You see, we are all waiting for that day. Whether we are waiting eagerly or ignorantly, we are all waiting for that day. In believing Jesus' words about that day, it enables you to wait rightly for his return. It enables you to wait well. First, it enables you to wait in readiness. 
See, Jesus is the king who was, he is the king who is, and he is the king who is absolutely coming again. And so the first question we must all ask is, will you be found ready when he returns or not? Will you be ready for the king's coronation and when he comes? Here's how you know if you are ready or not. It is not difficult. Have you said to Jesus, I see that you are the king and that I am not, that you have authority all over everything, including my own life? Have you believed that through his death on the cross, he took the punishment for your sin and your rebellion against him? And have you believed that through his resurrection, he has given you a new life in him? Have you surrendered your heart and your life to that God who is your savior and your king, not one or the other, but both? We see, you will either be ready or not, not based on what you have done, but based on your faith in the one who has finished the work on your behalf. See, if you are here this morning, and what you recognize is that you have not said that, you have not seen Jesus as the king who has all authority, you have not submitted and surrendered your life to him, you have not seen him as the one who saves you from your sin and the one who gives you new life in him, then I just need you to hear this. You are not ready for his return. If you have not surrendered to him as Savior and Lord, you are not ready for his return. And I urge you this morning that you might do it, that you might come to Jesus humbly to receive the offer of life that he has. You see, you are here this morning because the great king of the universe in love for you is pursuing you. He is coming after you. He is calling you. He is reaching out his hand towards you that you might receive his hand of rescue, but you must receive it humbly and without qualifications. You see, for him to be Savior, he must also be Lord. And for us to say, King Jesus, you rule and reign over all things, and I will submit to you. You see, and when we set our hope and our trust in Jesus and his word, it doesn't just enable us to be ready for his return enables us to wait ready to wait confidently you see no matter what's happening around us no matter what trials or tribulations you see we can trust jesus no matter the sin or the evil or the persecution no matter who you see turning from their faith jesus is still king he is still on the throne and that truth i just need you to hear this that truth enables you to interpret your life on the foundation of his word, not to interpret his word on the changing situations in your life. You need that kind of a firm foundation. You see, if your life is the thing on which you interpret the word of God, you have no foundation and no security. There is no, there is no sureness there. You see, but the good news of God's word is that it is absolutely sure. It is unrelentingly sure and foundational. And when we put our hope in that, it frees us to interpret the situations of our life based on the sureness of God's word, not the other way around. That's a recipe for confidence. That's a recipe for hope. That's a recipe for sureness in the midst of calamity. You see, you see the truth about Jesus' kingly return. It enables us to be ready for his return. It enables us to wait confidently, but it also enables us to wait expectantly. You see, Jesus, he gives the disciples some signs. He gives them some clues about where things are headed. But his emphasis to them is not to be worried about the details of the signs. In fact, every time he gives them a sign, he says, you'll see this. Just a heads up, that's not the end. Uh, that's how you know the end is still coming. And if you notice, there isn't really anything he gives you other than the mission will be finished and then the king will come. That's really the only thing you got timing on. That's, that's pretty much it. You see, 
The truth about Jesus' kingly return, what he tells us, enables us to wait expectantly, not going overboard trying to interpret the signs or trying to figure out an exact date for when Jesus comes. In fact, if you hear anyone tell you they know when Jesus is coming back, that's how you know you can just ignore them flat out, right? Because Jesus says, no one knows. So anyone who tries to know obviously doesn't know. So just let that go, okay? Just, that's just like your five-minute saver, right? You're just like, oh, okay, I can, ch- I can tune out on this one, right? You see, waiting expectantly, it doesn't emphasize an obsession with the signs. You see, waiting expectantly emphasizes an obsession with longing for the king. You see, waiting expectantly is about patiently longing for the king's return. You know he's coming, and you know he knows when he is coming, and you know he, you can trust him to come. And so you long for his return in confidence, in, in expectantly. And waiting expectantly, it helps you to wait faithfully. You see, clinging tightly to Jesus and to his word and rejecting all other hopes or joys for life. See, every single day, you and I, we are bombarded with false gospels and false saviors. This person, this place, this thing, this relationship, that, that pleasure, that experience, that freedom, it will, it will save you, it will free you, it will fulfill you, it will give you the life you are looking for, it will fill the need in your heart, it will save you from your greatest fears, and the truth is none of it ever does or ever will except Jesus. He's the one thing when you get it, it will not let you down. He is the one thing that when you have it, actually satisfies. He's the one thing that will never rickroll you, right? Jesus is the one thing that gives life and satisfies, nothing else. I don't know about you, but I needed to hear that this week. I really needed to hear that this week. I was meeting up with Dawson, and God was just reminding me about how easily my heart longs for other things. And especially how the way I see my expendable income, it reveals that I'm looking for pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment in something other than King Jesus. I needed to be reminded this week of Jesus' words that enabled me to wait on him to remember that he's the one thing that really satisfies. He's the one thing that gives the life I long for. He's what I'm looking for. Seeing when our hope is set on him and his word about his kingly return enables us you enables you to wait faithfully for him, committed to him, with a heart that is undivided for him. And when your heart is set on him, you are able not just to wait faithfully, but to wait diligently for him. You see, living for his glory and the mission of seeing disciples who worship him from everywhere, from your neighborhood to the ends of the nations. You see, the vision of River City Church here is that we would be a church that is growing in the gospel and making disciples and planting churches because what we long for is the completion of verse 14. What we long for is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then for the end to come. I don't know about you, but my heart is often tired of sin and of pain and of brokenness in my life and in this world. I find myself some days just praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Some days it feels like it's all I can get out. You see, and in those moments, what I need to ask Jesus for is to help me to wait diligently for him steadfastly given to his kingdom and his mission of making disciples for his glory, not just confidently, not just expectantly, not just faithfully, but diligently 
given to his kingdom and his purposes. Lastly, the truth about Jesus' kingly return, as we see here in our passage in Matthew 24, it enables us to wait in a joyful hope for his coming. See, the presence of the king is coming, and it is life-giving, it is joyful, it is a hope-filled good news. You see, when the king comes, he will set all things right. And the disciples' question that initiates Jesus' words here, they're again, they're about his parousia, right? The return of his kingly presence, his rule and reign over all things. And the good news of the gospel is what enables us to wait in joyful hope for that day. Tim Keller, I think, sums it up best when he says it this way. At the first coming, Jesus did not come to bring judgment. He came to take it. And at the first coming, he gets the rejection, he gets the death, he gets the darkness on the cross. Jesus Christ experienced not the infinite healing presence of God, but the infinitely devastating absence of God. Why? Keller goes on to say, he paid our penalty so that we could get his presence. He paid the penalty so we might get the presence that we might get the love, so that we might get the life, so that we might get the light. You see, here is the gospel. The great judge of the universe was willing to be judged for you. The great judge of the universe was willing to be judged for you. You see, the good news of the gospel is that that is not by your works that you will be found already on his return or not. It is by the, your faith in the finished work of the one who came to do it for you. You see, Jesus is our king, and he came first in weakness to save us. You need to hear this. You see, King Jesus, he came first in weakness so that he might save you. So that when he returns in power and in glory, you might be able to rejoice at his strength, not fear it. He came first in weakness to save you so that when he returns in strength, you might have great joy in his return, not fear. You see, that's my heart for you this morning. See, for those of you who love Jesus, oh, that your love for him might increase and grow as you set your hearts on his return. That you might long for it in confidence, in hope, in expectance, in joy, in readiness. And for those of you who do not yet love him, who do not yet long for his return, or who, who if you are honest with yourself this morning, you, you are unsure or even fearful about it. My heart for you this morning is that you would have your heart captured by the king who has come to save you, by the king who came that you might have life, by the king who came to tell you about the end so that you might be ready for it, the one who made you, who, who has come so that you might be made ready for it. You see, in every week when we take communion, that's what we are celebrating. That's what we are remembering. You see, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way. You see, communion instead is a chance for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus, to, to remember all that he did for us, to remember that his body and his blood were broken and shed for us so that you and I might be cleansed and made new, ready for his kingly return. You see, and when we take communion, what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves about those truths. We're reminding ourselves about all he has done and on all he has promise that he will do so that we might set our eyes on the king who is coming back that's why we do that every week because you and i we forget and we need to remember 
You see the bread and the juice there in the back. You take the bread and you just dip it in the juice and and that's how you take communion here at River City. There, there won't be someone here to dismiss you just during our time of singing and worship. You just go back as you are ready. And so if you put your hope and your trust in Jesus, if his word is the thing on which you have built your life, the hope that you have is in him, then when you're ready, go back and take communion. Do it in a joyful celebration, remembering the king who came for you and the king who is coming again. Do it in joy as you, as you are filled with hope, reminded that you have been made ready by faith in him for his great kingly return and that when he returns, it will bring life. It is the one thing that you will build up and never be let down by. At communion, remember that. Invite your heart. Ask, the, ask God to remind you of those truths that might empower you to live for those things in light of every day. See, but if not, if, if Jesus is not yet your hope, is he if not your savior and not yet your king, I want you to know you are welcome here. In fact, this church was began for you. This church was begun so that people like you might be here, that you might hear the good news of who Jesus is and that you might see him as the good king who has come to rescue and to lead you. But this morning, if Jesus is not yet your savior and your king, I would encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Talk with God. Be honest with him. Come talk with me. I'd love to talk with you more about that. Communion is about remembering that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. And if he's not yet those things, then communion is not right for you yet. But this church is, and this community of believers is, and you are welcome here, and I want you to know that. So as we take communion this morning, I want to encourage you. Sing. Talk with God. Ask him. Are you ready for his return? Talk with him about it. How does his word need to shape your heart and your life today and every day as you wait for his return? What are you tempted to put your trust in or your hope in? What causes you to doubt, whether it's situations or circumstances or, or whatever it might be? Bring that stuff to him. Be honest with him about those things. I want you to know he can take your doubt. He can take your questions. He's not afraid of it. He's not afraid of your questions or your curiosity. He's not afraid of your unknowns and of your unsureness. Bring those things to him. Ask him to meet you in the midst of that stuff. And most of all this morning, ask him to remind you about the good news of the gospel, which is what enables you to wait for him, ready, confident, expectant, faithful, diligent, and full of exceeding joy. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning. God, I, I needed to be reminded this week, God, of your impending return. God, I am so grateful that you are not just a king who came 2,000 years ago to inaugurate your kingdom and to, to make a way for helpless sinners like me to be saved, but I am so grateful, Jesus, that you are the great king of glory who is coming to be crowned and worshiped for the king you are. God, coming to set all things right. So King Jesus, I just come to you humbly this morning. I need you to help me set my eyes on you. God, so often my heart is drawn away. God, King Jesus, help me set my eyes on you. God, we all need you to help us set our eyes on you. To not be fixed on the concerned about the signs or the circumstances, but to have our hearts fixed on a longing for the king's return. And so, King Jesus, we come, we come with joy this morning. 
God, that you have come so that we might know you and be ready for your return. God, we love you. Thanks that you have loved us first so that we might be ready for your great kingly return. Pray these things in your good name. Amen.